As Pastor Otto mentioned, the last few weeks we have been uh, embarking on a series called I Am. And an Easter season every single year, you see so many uh, specials on TV and movies put out and documentaries trying to discover the real Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? Well, we have the real Jesus. The real Jesus had, has told us exactly who he is. And he did through some incredible I am statements in the book of John. And today, the I am statement that we're going to be looking at is very apropos because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles with me today, we're going to be in two different passages. First, you're going to want to turn to John chapter 11, all right? Turn to John chapter 11, and when you get there, go ahead and put a bookmark right in your Bible there in John chapter 11 for us, okay? A bookmark in John chapter 11, and then once you've got that bookmark in there, I want you to turn over to John chapter 20, okay? And I'll explain all of that in just a moment, but John chapter 11 and John chapter 20, you'll be able to follow along. We're going to start in John chapter 20 today. Well, this is the first Easter in my entire life, and, and, and you're going to say, oh, Matthew Downer, here we go, that I have spent without my grandma. My grandma passed away last summer, and uh, she was just the most wonderful, loving, caring, uh, hospitable, great cook. She was, she was that grandma that you think about in the movies. She was wonderful. She had one fatal flaw, though, one terrible thing about her, and now that she's gone on to be with the Lord, I can tell you exactly what it is. <laughs> Grandma had false teeth. Now, that's not a fatal flaw. If you have false teeth, I am not an anti-false teethite, okay? Don't worry about that. It's that Grandma got a great thrill out of taking her false teeth and at a, a moment's notice, spitting them out of her mouth so that all the children in the room would go, ah! <laughs> so... We eventually would look at Grandma and go, Grandma, do that thing with your teeth. Do that thing with your teeth. Now I don't want to. No, do it. Do the thing with your teeth. And then she'd do it. She'd stick her teeth out. Oh, and we'd all scream. And she did this for children and for, and for grandchildren and for great-grandchildren for 25 years. God bless her. And so my children were blessed with Grandma sticking her teeth out at them. Uh, they called her Gigi. Well, this has been the first experience in death for my kids, and it's been interesting to see how they all have responded to, to the loss of, of Gigi. And so a few months ago, uh, we were doing our bedtime stories, and we were talking about the Bible, and I don't know what got my little three-year-old Cameron thinking this way, but I laid him in bed, and I tucked him in, and he says, Daddy? And I says, what, Cam? He says, he says is Gigi in heaven with Jesus? And I said, yeah, yeah, Jesus is in Gigi. Gigi's, Gigi's in heaven with Jesus. That's right, Gigi's in heaven with Jesus. He says, he says is Jesus going to give her new teeth? <laughs> and I said, yes, Cameron. Jesus is going to give Gigi new teeth. He says, she needs new teeth. He says, yes, she does. And Gina could attest to this for, 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 for months now. He keeps asking if, if Jesus is going to give Gigi new teeth. And I answered in the affirmative, and then I, I walked out and I thought, why? Hold on a minute. Yes, he is going to give her new teeth. That's good theology from a three-year-old. She's going to get some, some new teeth. And, and, and you say, well, what does that have to do with our sermon today? It has everything to do with our sermon today. Because we are going to be talking about Jesus claiming to be the resurrection and the life. And I want to tell you today why I have confidence that Gigi is going to get some new teeth. 
But in order to tell you why I have that confidence, I need to tell you a tale. And I call today a tale of three tombs. Are you in John chapter 20? Let's read about the first tomb this morning. The first tomb is the empty tomb. John chapter 20, verse 1. You all know the story. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb of Jesus early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped to look in, and he saw the linen burial cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen burial cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. The story of the empty tomb is all about the word must. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, I'm not talking about that smell in your attic. That's not that type of must. This is a had to happen, absolutely had to happen type of must. The tomb that on Friday was occupied by the dead body of the Son of God absolutely had to be vacated, says the writer of the scripture. It must happen. The body of the Son of God couldn't stay dead in that stone mausoleum. And on that first Easter Sunday morning, the writer of John tells us something interesting. This unnamed disciple, the one that's just called the, the disciple who Jesus loved, he goes into the tomb, okay? He gets into the tomb, and it says he believed, but he did not understand. So he, he believes, oh, Jesus had risen, has risen from the dead. But he had no idea why. I'm sure he was excited about it. I'm sure he was pretty pumped that Jesus had risen from the dead. This was his master. This was his teacher. This was, this was the one that he'd given three years of his life and ministry to. I'm sure he was pumped that Jesus had risen from the dead. But it's so interesting, and I, I love the Bible for just its truthfulness. It, just, it, it shows that the disciples really did not have a full grasp of the theology of what Jesus was doing. But perhaps that disciple did remember the words of Jesus that we studied last week from John chapter 10, where Jesus says, listen, folks, I'm going to lay down my life, but I have authority to take it up again. So that disciple believed that Jesus took his life up again. He rose of his own volition from the dead. But he didn't know quite why. He couldn't understand the why, which means he didn't understand the must. Why must the tomb be empty? Why must the Savior rise? To get the answer to this question, we can't necessarily keep reading in John chapter 20. We have to go back because Jesus explains it to us at another tomb. So I want to take you to the second tomb this morning, and the tomb is a tomb in John chapter 11. You can turn your Bibles there, and that's what I like to call the soon-to-be-empty tomb. The tomb in John chapter 11 where Jesus speaks those famous words, I am the resurrection and the life, was not his own tomb, but the tomb of his friend Lazarus. 
there were a, a sibling combo, Lazarus and Martha and Mary that Jesus was very close to. They were, took part in his ministry, helped support his ministry, were very interested in everything that Jesus was doing. And Lazarus had taken ill, except Jesus did not get there in time to save Lazarus. And when we pick up the story in verse 17 of John chapter 11, Jesus is arriving at the tomb of Lazarus in Bethany, which was near Jerusalem, but Lazarus has already been dead for four days. But we're going to find something out about the must in this story, and the must is what gives me confidence in Gigi's new teeth. Let's look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Jesus, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The soon-to-be-empty tomb is all about the phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a wonderful statement by Jesus. It's a powerful statement by Jesus. But there's a lot more going on here than just that statement. Because Lazarus is still dead. And Martha is still frustrated with the Son of God. Did you catch that? She's, she's ticked off at Jesus for not coming earlier. She runs up to Jesus, and what's the first thing that she says? Oh, thank you for coming. We're so glad that you've come to console us. That's not what she says, is it? What does she say? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Why didn't you do something about this? Why didn't you stop this from happening? Why didn't you keep him from dying? Jesus, what's the deal? Now, if you live long enough in this life, you're going to ask God those exact same questions. Some of you have had to ask God that question multiple times. Some of you in frustration have looked at God and said, God, why didn't you heal? God, why didn't you save? God, why did he have to die? God, why did she have to die? You'll grow mad. You'll go fr grow frustrated at God too. It's part of our human condition. Now into this situation, Jesus does not stand aloof. He offers her words of consolation immediately. He says, Martha... Martha, Lazarus is going to rise. Just like we say when somebody goes to be with the Lord, you know, you're going to see them again. Jesus is saying to her, you're going to see him again. He's going to rise. Death is not the end of the story. He's trying to calm her down. And in Jesus trying to calm Martha down, they end up talking theology, which is just odd. I, I suppose they should have waited a few weeks to talk theology, but they didn't. They did it right there, and maybe that had to do with who Martha was and what her character was. But I don't want you to think that Jesus was just talking theology with Martha. That's what Martha does, but that's not where Jesus is emotionally. Look down in verse 32. Let's see where Jesus is in the face of Martha's frustration. Verse 32, it says, Now when Mary, the other sister, came to Jesus 
and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Wasn't Jesus receiving a warm welcome on this occasion? Every time he gets there, they're like, this is your fault. Thank you so much for doing this. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Everybody's second favorite Bible verse, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have also kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Three times it mentions Jesus' emotional state upon coming to this scene. Jesus is not there walking in like some theological warrior. Jesus walks into this situation completely emotionally connected to the people who are frustrated with him. He sees the pain in Mary and Martha, and it says he's deeply troubled. And when he begins to move towards the tomb of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says, Jesus wept. And then when they got even closer to the tomb, it says he was deeply moved again. Jesus hates to see his friends in pain at the death of their brother. And not only does he hate to see Mary and Martha in this pain, when he thinks about what Lazarus had to go through in death, he weeps so much he loves his friend that he weeps to think what Lazarus has been through. And as he moves to the tomb, deeply troubled again, he thinks about what has happened to his friend and how it has affected him. Jesus does and did feel our pain in our frustration. In the coup de grace, the, 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 final, the final slap in the face to Jesus in this moment is found in verse 37. Now the crowd is looking at Jesus and going, couldn't he have done something? Couldn't he have done something about this death? if he had only been here. So Mary, Martha, and the crowd are all looking at the Son of God and saying, Jesus, look at this death. Why don't you do something about it? Well, let's go back to Martha's theology before we answer that question. We draw a little bit closer to the must and a little bit closer to the confidence that I have. You see, Martha was a good theologian Look down in your Bibles again. I want you to back up in chapter 11 with me for just a second. And I want you to look at verse 24, because Martha's a real good Jewish Christian theologian. When Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again, she then says, yeah, Jesus, I get it. I get it. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. That's good theology. That's a difference between the theology of of Judeo-Christianity and many other religions. God's not interested in only redeeming your spirit. God's not interested in only redeeming your soul. God is interested in buying back, redeeming all of you. Making new not just your spirit, making new not just your soul, but making your body new as well. See, we as humans, we are body, soul, and spirit. That is all of what makes us up. We are all, that's human. That's human. So it's poor theology to think that when we die, that all all that's going to happen to us into eternity is that our spirits are going to float away, that we're going to get fitted with some wings, be given a gold harp and a cloud. That is not good theology. 
good theology is on the last day, the time when this age ends and eternity begins, God is going to call forth all people in resurrection. People are going to get a new body, a body that is designed to inherit eternity. That's what's going to happen, and Martha knew this. So she says, Jesus, I get it. You're going to redeem all of Lazarus. Lazarus. His spirit may be with the Lord, but there's going to be a day when all of him is redeemed. He's going to get a new body fitted for eternity, and that's going to be, that's going to be the new human. There's a new way to be human, if you will. And that's going to happen on Resurrection Day. She gets it. But the problem is how? How? Because the Bible has been telling a consistent story from Genesis chapter 3 onward. And the consistent story that the Bible tells from Genesis chapter 3 onward is the story of human death. The fact that each one of us is destined to die. And we have no idea how this resurrection is going to be purchased. Isn't it the Bible that says that the wages of sin is death? Now think back to how that happened. Think back with me for a moment to the Garden of Eden. God gives Adam and Eve all the Garden of Eden to tend. He gives them all the plants, all the trees, all the animals to have dominion over. They are in paradise working for God and enjoying having dominion over the earth. He says, one thing I don't want you to do, Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you will surely die. You'll surely die. Why? Because sin, evil, brings death. See, he had to give them free will. He had to give them a choice, or otherwise they couldn't choose to trust him and love him and care about him. They couldn't come into relationship with God without free choice. They would have been robots. He had to give the opportunity for them to move away from him so that they would have the true opportunity to move toward him. But we know the story of the garden. Humans chose not to trust the God who had created them. Our first parents chose to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and death entered the world. We as human beings broke the trust between us and God. We purchased death. Romans 5.12 puts it this way, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Martha can look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe because of who God is that there is going to be a resurrection at the end of time, that death is not the end of the story. And Jesus says in verse 25, Martha, you are right. Death is not the end of the story because I am the resurrection and I am the life. I've come here to reverse the curse. I've come here to take death and kick it in the teeth. Because death is what is happening to all of you. I, as the Son of God, am coming to grant resurrection to all of you. Something that I'm going to do is going to purchase resurrection for all of you. You as humans have purchased death, but I have come to purchase resurrection. That's what Jesus has come to do. We're now on the doorstep of the must, on the doorstep of this confidence. Let's go back to the empty tomb in our minds for a minute. Let's stoop 
and let's go into that tomb together where the burial cloths of the Son of God are laying there, where he has taken the time to fold the face cloth neatly before exiting the tomb. Let's, let's enter there. Because we gotta bring some things together and I don't know that I can do it for you. It would be helpful if like Columbo would come into the tomb with us. And if not Columbo, Sherlock Holmes to come into the tomb and ask us some questions. So let's just imagine that for a minute. You pick Columbo, Sherlock Holmes, well, if we're going to ask questions, it should probably be Columbo. Just one more question. Let's imagine our favorite detective. You NCIS people bring in your detective. You CSI people bring in your detective. Just bring your favorite detective into the tomb with you because we've got to figure out the must because in the must is our confidence. First, our favorite detective looks at us and says, why was this death needed? Why was this death needed? And as good Jews, people who had been raised in the sacrificial system, knowing the insufficiency of the law and of sacrifice, we, we think about it, we, we think, we think, we think, and we look at, at a favorite detective and say, I think Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that the entire Bible up to this point pointed to. I think Jesus was the sacrifice for human sins. I think Jesus paid the penalty for all our sins. I think that's what happened three days ago. And the detective smiles. He says, good, good. You're getting there. And then he says, you know, but, but if the wages of sin is death, and a man is sinless, what should be the result when he's killed? And you think about that question. If the wages of sin is death, and, 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 but a man is sinless like Jesus was, perfect sinless sacrifice, what should happen when a sinless man dies? And you, you look at the, your favorite detective and say, I think he rises again. He says, good, 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 good. We're almost there, we're almost to the must. But how would we know that we would be released from death? unless he was released first. How would we know that the sacrifice was good? How would we know that the sacrifice was pure? How would we know that he was sinless and that we had hope to rise again unless he rose first? And you look at your favorite detective and you get it now. You say, we wouldn't. And the detective looks at you and says, we wouldn't, but he did. He did. You know that resurrection is for you because he paid your penalty on the cross and he rose again to show you that he is the resurrection and the life. Now they understand that he must rise. He had to rise to prove that he could release us from death. It's why he took on flesh just as we have. He was the first one of us humans to rise from the dead in the resurrection body that we hope for. And at his tomb, he proved what he said to Martha at the soon-to-be-empty tomb. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And nine chapters from now, I know, not really nine chapters, he proved it. He proved it. Prove that he had the right to wake us up on the last day. Prove that he had the right to put together the carbon and water that makes us up and go sinless 
to each one of our bodies. Prove the authority over resurrection by being the first and only person to defeat death, so therefore he is the life. That's what he proved at the empty tomb. Now before we get to the third tomb today, we can't leave Lazarus dead in the grave, so let's look down at 1143. Wouldn't be fair to Lazarus, it is Resurrection Sunday. Verse 43, when Jesus has said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let him go. And I want to take you back to the first verse we read about Lazarus. Lazarus was dead for four days. Four days. That dude was decomposing. So don't you worry about whether or not Jesus has the power to raise you from the dead. That dude was fully dead. He was grossly dead. And Jesus raised him anyways. There's two things of foreshadowing that took place in this story, and we just talked about one. The foreshadowing is that in his talk with Martha, Jesus foreshadowed that he would be the resurrection and the life by being the first person to raise from the dead. But there's a foreshadowing here that we can't miss today before we leave, and it's this. In raising Lazarus, he foreshadowed something just as exciting. He foreshadowed your empty tomb. He foreshadowed your empty tomb. And that's the third tomb today. My empty tomb? I'm still sitting here. As the man from Monty Python said, I'm not quite dead yet. I know. I know. You're not quite dead yet. But it's a reality we all face. As sinful human beings and as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we will die. But we've learned a must this morning. And we've gained a confidence this morning that Jesus had to rise to purchase eternal life for fallen human beings. There will be a resurrection. Just as sure as you will one day die, one day Jesus is going to call your name the way he called Lazarus' name that day. John, come out. Laura, come out. Bill, come out. Sarah, come out. Mike, come out. Rachel, come out. On the last day of this age and on the first day of eternity, he is going to call your name. Your tomb is going to stand empty. But there's a catch. There's a catch. Because there's a word that links the first tomb and the second tomb, and it's going to link right into the third tomb. And the third tomb, your empty tomb, is all about the word believe. It's the last word needed to have the confidence. You see, that disciple stooped into that tomb, and what did it say about him? He believed, though he didn't quite fully understand Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And what does he say to her next? Do you believe this? Two of the most famous verses in Christianity, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever believes Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. On that last day, you want to be counted as one who believed. You say, I I don't understand. If Jesus died so that all people could be resurrected, why does my belief have anything to do with that? Well, before we answer that question, let me just tell you, there will be a resurrection, and at that resurrection, some people are going to be moving away from God for eternity. And I don't want to think about that horror. But for us who believe, we are moving toward God in eternity to joys forevermore. On that great getting up morning, we are going to be excited to run into the arms of our risen Savior but it necessitates belief. You say, why? Why does John 3.16 say that? Why does Romans chapter 10 say that? Why Why does it say that about that disciple in the tomb? Why did Jesus ask Martha, do you believe? Because just as distrust in the Garden of Eden led to death, restoring our faith in God leads to life. They chose not to trust the word of God in Genesis chapter 3. They chose to go after that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to believe God was a liar and a tyrant. That broke the trust. That ushered in death. Jesus has become the resurrection and the life for us, but there's a catch. The catch is this. To restore the trust and to accept that life, we must believe. We must do what Adam and Eve could not, and that is to put our full faith and trust in the living God. Belief. That's what your empty tomb is all about. Belief. To restore what was broken, you have to believe because there are no other resurrections. There is no other life. Only one man has raised from the dead by his own volition, and only one had the right to die on behalf of sinful humanity. His name was Jesus Christ, and it is imperative that you believe in him. It's everything. You must restore the broken trust. He has defeated death. Now you must believe in faith. In order to repair the bond, he must rise, and we must trust. We must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and then we shall be saved. Martha believed. The beloved disciple believed. Will you choose now to believe? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? With every head in this place bowed and every eye closed, we're just gonna pray and have just a few moments of sacred time. I just ask that you'll remain seated and remain in the spirit of reverence. I have confidence today that each one of us is gonna get a new body. That all the broken parts of us will be made new and better because Christ has purchased eternal life for each and every one of us. He's purchased new flesh and a clean soul and spirit for each one of us. It's a gift of God. You can't earn it. 
You can't do good works to get it. You can't look at God and say, I'm a good person. Am I with you? It's simple. It's so simple. Just believe. Trust him the way that our first parents didn't, and you shall be saved. Can't earn it. Can't buy it. It's not about what you can do for God. It's all about what God has done for you. Will you believe and be saved? He's going to call your name one day. He's going to call your name. I don't care how you were raised. I don't care what vices you have. I don't care what religion that you started with or what religion you're battling against now. I don't care. God loves you. Doesn't matter who your parents are. Doesn't matter who your parents were or weren't. Doesn't matter who went to church and who didn't. Doesn't matter who went through the traditions of their faith and who didn't. It matters about you right in this moment. And the question is, Will you believe and trust in the God who created you that he has done everything necessary to save you? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You will have accepted the work he's done on your behalf. If you're in this place today and you say, Pastor Matt, I have been tiptoeing around Jesus and Christianity for many years. Or maybe I've been tiptoeing around Jesus and Christianity for the past hour and a half. And I don't quite understand everything, and I don't know that I get it all. I don't know that I have all the theology worked out. But I feel in this place today, in this moment, God's calling my name already. He's told me that he loves me. My heart is pounding, and I know that he is here. And today I want to confess that I believe in him for the first time. I want to be saved. If that's you today, I just want you as a sign of your faith and your trust and your belief in God to raise a hand towards heaven. Just raise your hand to God right in this moment. God bless you, I see that hand. God bless you, I see that hand. God bless you, I see that hand. You're just saying, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you raised from the dead. I believe that you are who you say you are. You can put that hand down. I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Somebody doesn't feel worthy in this place. I see that hand. God bless you. This isn't about me and you. It's about you and him, but I just want to affirm you in this moment. There's someone who feels unworthy in this place right now. There's something in your past, and you're like, I'm not worthy of God, and he's saying, you're my child, and I love you. Today's the day to come home. Who are you? I ain't going to come to your house after service, I promise. Who are you? You don't feel worthy of the Lord this morning. You don't think his sacrifice was really for you. You don't believe that you're, you could never really be right with God. This is the day for salvation for you. He loves you. He died for everything you ever did. You are his beloved child. Don't miss it. I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. I'm going to pray over you. There is nothing magic about the prayer that I'm praying. There is nothing special about me or my prayer. 
What's special is when you pray with me and believe in your heart and trust God in your heart and mean it from your heart. In that moment, you shall be saved. Okay? So I'm going to ask everybody in this place, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, okay? And I'm going to ask you to pray loud. And I want you folks who have raised your hand today, you mean this from your heart, okay? You, you make this about you and God in this moment. He has died for you and he loves you. Now all you need to say is, I put my trust in you. Let's all pray together. Would you repeat after me? Lord Jesus, I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you can make me whole. And I believe that you will give me eternal life. So today I believe in you, Jesus. I trust in you, Jesus. And I will follow you, Jesus, until the day you call my name. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks who raise your hand, we're just going to clap because you've just made the greatest decision that you will ever make in your life. God bless you.